from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungmin from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 12th. Today, the vast surveillance network that's helping to catch the Capitol mob and the legacy of Prince Philip. My name is Drew Harwell, and I'm a tech reporter for The Washington Post. I write a lot about surveillance technology, all the cameras and sensors and data gathering tech that shapes our lives. And I think one of the most interesting examples of a lot of these things I write about was January 6th and the Capitol riots. This was a huge disaster, and it was, even for the FBI, which is like the U.S.'s biggest, most powerful law enforcement agency, This was just a gargantuan criminal investigation for them to pursue because they had hundreds of people who busted into the Capitol, all of whom came from across the country. So tracking all of them down and prosecuting them for, you know, in some cases, violence toward police was this massive challenge for investigators. And so from looking through a lot of the investigative documents and a lot of the court filings, as we did for this story, you know, we started to see, okay, they had a secret weapon in pursuing this investigation, which was all of these technical systems that had been gathering data on these people the whole time. And that pretty much created this breadcrumb trail right back to people's homes and personal lives. And what are some of the examples of the surveillance technology that they used to be able to track down some of these people? Yeah, so they used pretty much everything. And a lot of it was kind of unsophisticated stuff that we're used to, you know, social media and Facebook and kind of surveillance cameras that are just all the way wired around the Capitol. But they also use some really kind of controversial, fairly new types of technologies like facial recognition, right, where they could take an image on photo or video and have the computer tell them if they found any matches in, say, DMV driver's license photos or passport photos. They used license plate readers, and these are cameras that are installed all around America on highway overpasses and toll roads and bridges and cop cars that scan the license plates of every car that passes by and effectively creates a map of where people's cars were seen. You know, they used cell tower location records that could say really precisely where somebody's phone had been. And in that process, the FBI agents were able to pull out details and evidence from these kinds of surveillance systems that have ultimately helped fuel more than 300 charges against potential rioters and 
potentially more than 100 other cases are still to come. That's so interesting because I feel like we've heard so much about, oh, yeah, all these people posted videos of themselves on Twitter and Facebook. And how dumb is that, that they just like left all this evidence out. But you're saying that it goes way deeper than that. And there was a lot more data that prosecutors could use and pair with some of the social media stuff to be able to pinpoint where these people are and to be able to arrest them. And we can see in a lot of the files, like a lot of these people were not trying to hide their tracks at all. And they pretty much made it really easy for investigators to find them because they were posting on social media, you know, using their full names. They were saying, hey, we broke in and smashed and grabbed and stole X, Y, and Z. So in those cases, it was fairly open, shut, you know, kind of routine investigation. But in many other cases we found, you know, these were people who did try and sort of hide or conceal that they were part of the riots. And, you know, when they went back home, maybe they dumped a cell phone or took out a SIM card or moved. We saw cases where Somebody said he fried his cell phone in a microwave. They they changed cars. People were trying to hide in the weeks after the aftermath as they saw these arrests and criminal cases get made. And so, you know, in a lot of those cases, we could see the FBI really trying to use every tool in their toolbox. Can you paint a picture of an example of how these techniques were able to be used to arrest one of the Capitol rioters? Yeah, there were a lot of people who had these really just fascinating cases that we saw. I mean, there was one couple, a man and his fiance, who had gone into the Capitol. They had masks on. They were they were a lot more careful than some of the other suspects and even wearing a mask. And one of the the couple sort of said on video, you know, you kind of see them looking around in the Capitol and, you know, the man tells his fiance. It's amazing. Take, put your mask on. I don't want them to see you. You know, put your mask back on. We don't want them to see you, right? He was really trying to keep them hidden. And just from that video that she posted onto the social network parlor, FBI agents said in their charging documents that they were able to connect the look of that couple with the look of a couple that was found on at least 10 other surveillance cameras that were recording at all times. The agents were also able to pull up their Facebook account. They were able to see that the guy had been, you know, fishing on the Potomac River wearing the same hat, you know, one day after the riots. They pulled up their business profile on Yelp and could sort of match their their photos. They were even able to listen to the guy's voice in this news report. That boat was 90% underwater, so yeah, I was just still floating on it, thank God they came the time that they did. From last year when he had capsized while fishing and there was a news report about it and they were able to match his voice between that and the Seriously? parlor video. With facial recognition too, we could see some cases where Either the agents would take a photo or video and where you could see someone's face in there and they would run it through and it could spit out a driver's license photo. Or, or in one case, it was a photo that a guy had sent in for his passport application like four years ago. They were able to kind of search through their records and connect 
the person on that application photo with the person who is inside the Capitol. You know, with license plate readers, we could see there was one guy who did a round trip road trip from New York to DC that day. And in the files, they could tell exactly how he drove and when he drove morning and night to get to DC. And so they could see, okay, you were in New York at this point, you're in Baltimore at this point. So it was pretty much impossible for some of these people to really defend themselves because there was just such a huge volume of evidence. And, And some other specific cases like cell phones really were just a pivotal tool in this. And, and maybe that's obvious, but for, for a lot of people, like the location records for these cell phones were just so precise mm. that, you know, with one couple, you could see literally right where they entered the Capitol, walked through the halls, made it to outside, you know, Speaker Pelosi's office. And you could see, you know, the exact time and location that they had spent inside the Capitol because oh, wow. the agents had gone to Google and said, Give us all the location data for these people. And is there a concern at all about whether some of this data might be imperfect, whether some of them might be false matches from facial recognition or or pieces of evidence that are not exactly open and shut the way that prosecutors might think that they are? FBI agents don't really talk about the potential for misidentification or imperfection in the records, but it's there, right? I mean, these systems, all of these systems, no matter how seemingly accurate they are, they are imperfect. You know, there's a huge conversation in facial recognition right now because those systems, we can tell from independent research, don't work as well on the faces of people of color. They have better performance, better accuracy when they're looking at a white guy like me than they do looking at pretty much anybody else. And that goes into how they were trained and the data and that kind of thing. But the reality of it is that people are being misidentified by these systems. And in at least three cases, all involving black men, they've been arrested falsely because their faces came up in a police search. And so, you know, that's one worry and and one important reminder about these systems is that all of this technical stuff can really seem convincing. And in that way, it almost makes it more risky because investigators and others may overly trust the the results of what they're getting and and may go down the wrong path in terms of investigating a crime. So, Drew, it sounds like what you're saying is that we actually do need to be worried about these tactics in use, because as much as many of us could look at these arrests and say, well, great, like, of course, we should be arresting the Capitol mob, that you think that there are actually concerns here about the implications of this technology when used more widely. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the real pivotal question here. And what got me so interested with this January 6th case was there are going to be a lot of people who are celebrating these people being brought to justice. And yet all of these same tools and techniques were used on Black Lives Matter protests last year. I remember seeing the exact case files. You know, they're they're used not just on the social movements you despise or dislike, but also on the ones you support and the people you support and ourselves. And we have to remember, even before these people barged into the Capitol, and we can tell from the court records, the data was being gathered on them already, right? They already Mm -hmm. had records going to Google or their 
cell phone company. The license plate readers were taking pictures of them, whether they were doing anything wrong or not. Hmm. So I think that's really important to remember is just that surveillance is not just used on the bad guys, right? It's used on all of us. And the data can be gathered and amassed and exploited in ways that we're not always really comfortable with. Even in cases like this, where we feel like this is a win for surveillance tech, it's really kind of a reminder of how we're all kind of left exposed, even just by going about our daily lives. Drew Harwell writes about technology for The Post. The story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky. On Friday, Prince Philip, the consort and partner to Queen Elizabeth II, died at the age of 99, just two months short of his 100th birthday. With his passing, Britain loses someone who was at times colorful, always engaged and controversial at moments, but uh, also there for the Queen and his family all along. And that, in the context of history, may be his, his most important legacy, his support of his wife, the Queen, and of the monarchy during a period of great change and turbulence. Adrian Higgins writes for The Washington Post. Prince Philip married then-Princess Elizabeth in 1947, when she was 21 and he was 26. Now the most triumphal of all marches, the Princess and Prince, once mere Lieutenant Mountbatten in His Majesty's Navy, march as man and wife toward the West Door amidst 2,500 invited spectators, hand-picked from the world's elite. Five years later, her father, King George VI, died unexpectedly, and Elizabeth and Philip both had to suddenly take on new roles. Before this happened, he was having a very successful naval career. He um, fought in World War II, and, you know, they were living the life of a young naval family, quite uh, below the radar and all that. They knew that Elizabeth was going to become the queen when the king died, but they thought that they'd have 15 years or whatever, reasonably, to expect before that occurred. But what happened was the king had lung cancer. He died in his early 50s. And that sort of cut short Philip's naval career. Do you have the sense of whether he resented that? The fact that he had a vision for his life where he could be a naval officer for years and years before he had to step into this other role and then all of a sudden having that change completely and and he is now the husband to the queen and that that is his primary job? Yeah, the narrative is that, yes, he sort of resented that. Maybe that's a little bit overblown and it's conflated with some problems that he encountered in his role with the royal household in the 50s. You have to sort of understand that Philip was this sort of alpha male, and that is entwined with how he uh, saw the world and how he approached it. And he was 
sort of defining or redefining a role that hadn't really been played out before. And Prince Philip actually talked about that with Barbara Walters in an interview in 1969. I, that I really don't know. There are a lot of problems and difficulties. Inevitably, it's, 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 it's an awkward situation to be in. Um, there's only one other person really like me, and that's uh, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. And so we, we occasionally discuss that. <laughs> He's the only other member of the union, so to speak. You tell him your problems and he tells you his. That's right, yeah. Do you get used to it? Oh, yes, you get used to anything. You'd be surprised. Once he got settled into his role as the royal consort, what were the big moments of his career? There's this credo in the British royal family that whatever the criticism, whatever the press story, whatever the scandal that comes up, you never complain and you never explain. Because, you know, if you want to put the record straight you inevitably get drawn into this sort of spiral of defensiveness and explanation, and it you lose control of the narrative. So he was very much a person who believed in, you know, whatever the headlines, whatever the controversy, you don't sort of engage with your critics. You just shut up and get on with it. So we never really got a really good, clear understanding of, of the sort of person Prince Philip was. I think the popular persona of Philip is that he was this sort of house husband who made gaffes. And this was such an incomplete view of his actual role and, and life, I think. So I wonder, especially for Americans who may not be as familiar with the royal family or in some ways might have a more negative view of the legacy of the royal family. Like, what do you think is missing in terms of our understanding of who Prince Philip was and why he is important? Okay, well, I I can't answer this without mentioning the crown, which, you know, took a lot of liberties (laughs) with every (laughs) member of the royal family, but especially Prince Philip. Who is it you think you'll be letting down anyway? A koala? This whole thing is a circus. It's a miserable circus. Trudging from town to town with the dancing bears. I'm glad you're saying this because, frankly, everything that I know about the royal family at this point comes from watching The Crown. So it's good to remember that that's not exactly a documentary. No, I mean, a lot of the imagined events and conversations in The Crown are just there for dramatic effect. One thing I will say that I think there is a misperception in America about the role of the royal family versus the people in Britain. The British people aren't vassals of the royal family, and the royal family isn't isn't some sort of tyrannical monarchy that that decides on a whim what people's rights are. The monarchy is a beloved institution still. Uh, principally, it should be said, because of the steadfast duty and work of Queen Elizabeth II, and by extension, you could argue Prince Philip. I mean, she has like an 80% approval rating. The question that comes is when she passes on and it moves to to Prince Charles, what will the domestic support for the royal family be at that point when uh, Charles becomes king? That's 
certainly an open question. Adrian Higgins writes for The Washington Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. We are interested in telling stories about the objects that connect people with their homeland. If you have moved to the U.S. from another country, we want to know. What's one object that you brought from home that you have always kept and why? Share your experiences with us by sending us a note at postreports at washpost.com or better yet, record your story using your voice memo app on your phone and email that to us too. We will also put a link to a submission form in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.